Welcome to After Hours with Dr. Sigalov, where he can share ideas and thoughts with you. He gets to the heart of the issue so that you can find the truth. The views and opinions expressed are his and do not represent the U.S. Army, DOD, nor the U.S. government. Dr. Sigalov was either off duty or on approved leave, and Dr. Sigalov was not in uniform at the time of recording. Now, to Dr. Sigalov. Thank you for joining us again on another episode. So last week we learned all about some interesting theory. I don't know if it's true or not. That's not the point. The point is to be open to new ideas. Ideas so strange that it it hits the very basis of your belief system. Also, when I recorded this, I started getting alerts on my phone. And those alerts are saying things that there's some leak of the judicial system that, that perhaps Roe vs. Wade might be overturned. Ladies and gentlemen, this is not the time to celebrate yet. It is time to potentially begin to get ready to celebrate, but keep praying. And remember that when the devil takes a fatal blow, he's going to lash at you with everything. So stay the course, stay strong, be ready for riots in the streets if this were to happen. Hopefully, there are no riots in the streets, but people have this strange need to keep this desire to to murder their babies. There's no other way to say it. Now, this is kind of a segue into today's episode. It has to do with murder. And maybe murder is not the right word. Because I don't know the intent of these people's hearts, but I will tell you that the medical care that Dean received, it was either done by intent to hurt him, or these terrible protocols that these hospitals are supposed to do are intended to hurt people. And you would think the doctors and the nurses, you would think that they would go against these protocols. But it doesn't seem that many did go against these protocols. There was one man who went against the protocol. And that man was an angel. And since Dean was a Marine, it's almost like he had overwatch on his position. He had an angel overwatch. And we're not going to give any details of who this this angel overwatch was because we want him to continue doing what he did. We don't want to jeopardize the ability of this angel to save others. So I'm here with Dean. Dean is a friend of mine. We've met through um, just being here, living in the same area. Yes. And he is a business owner. Uh, he owns Chosin Cycle. And uh, tell us just a little bit about yourself, your background, your history. Um, farm mechanic, a marine diesel mechanic. Then I got started in Harley's back about 37 years ago and started my shop and then moved uh, down here to Arizona about 16 years ago and opened up my shop. Just love working on bikes and... Uh, just having fun with it, dealing with all the people, the customers, and listening to the different people, and being that we're at uh, close to Fort Huachuca, uh, we get all the walks of life in here, and it's just a great place to be, back door of the desert. Now, I came by and saw you maybe a week ago, two weeks ago, and you told me about a really interesting experience, like actually quite terrifying, horrifying experience that you personally went through. Now, I know some of your memory of this is going to be a little hazy because of because of the experience itself. Right. Uh, but 
So kind of take us back to that time when things started, what your symptoms were and what happened. Okay. And I'm going to go back a little farther because the uh, doctors knew this when I was checked into the hospital because I went to both uh, same hospitals, but in uh, October 14, I had a heart attack and I was taken up to Tucson and uh, I had a stent put in and it took care of everything and uh, on all different types of medicine to keep my blood pressure, cholesterol down. I was on statins for the longest time and I got off them uh, due to uh, my daughter's suggestion and my brother's suggestion because statins will just rot your brain and uh, what a difference that made. So now we fast forward and it was October, once again in October, I don't know what it is about October, but October of uh, 21 and uh, all the COVID stuff was going on and uh, I was just, uh, I I seemed weird and I didn't uh, feel right. Uh, Friends were constantly asking me for days, you know, what's going on? I didn't think anything. I thought I was fine and normal until uh, one day, uh, middle of the night at three in the morning, I ended up uh, going to Benson because of the uh, chest pain I was having and my body just, I could tell something wasn't right. I get into Benson Hospital and they immediately uh, uh, put whatever it was, but two bags of something in me. Uh, immediately because my fingertips were turning blue and they wanted to send me up to Tucson and they had to test me first so they brought out this uh, swab and it was quite humorous to me because the swab right on the package said made in China and they're going to stick that in my nose and they tested me and of course I had COVID imagine that but what was wrong with me was my uh, I had double pneumonia and my kidneys, they weren't shutting down, but the kidneys were having a serious problem. I was extremely dehydrated uh, for whatever medical reason. And so they, uh, 45-minute drive up to Tucson, they checked me in, but before they checked me in, they have to test me again to see if I have COVID. But So I, you just got tested. Right. You drove 45, 45 minutes, right. and they yes. couldn't say he was already tested positive. Right. And uh, the one hospital told me they had to test me before the other hospital in Tucson would accept me, but the Tucson hospital had to test me too. You'd almost think it was something to do about money or something. Yeah, or they, or just the ineptitude of the medical system and how they can't communicate right. at yeah. all. I mean, there's, it's a balance between the two, right? I, I, I'll agree with that. Yeah. So they test me, and I have COVID, and they're wheeling me through on the gurney through the hospital, and they're going to put me in the... Uh, uh, COVID ward, where there's nothing but COVID patients. I'm like, I don't like being in there, but I did get my own room, so that was nice. And uh, I was in there for a day, total of eight days, but I was in there the first day. The second day, they finally put me on oxygen, and I believe I was on like five liters a minute, and uh, that helped breathe better. And they started giving me uh, something for pain, whether it was through my, I did have two IV ports, two IVs, and the first hospital did that in anticipation that I was going to need it. So I ended up getting the uh, pain medicine. It was either through an IV or in a pill. I don't remember because I was in a lot of pain and I was looped. And what pain were you in? Do you remember where the pain was? Uh, 
well, I have chronic pain, but mostly it was in my chest. And I thought that I was having uh, an episode of maybe possibly another heart attack or something because it's been uh, seven years, eight eight years it's been at at that, no, seven years at that point. And uh, I didn't know what the pain was from other than it was just extremely uncomfortable. And I wasn't uh, able to breathe easy. It was hard to breathe because what I found out later was the double pneumonia. And uh, so once they put me on the oxygen and help, but they put me on some pain medicine, and I'm not sure what it was, but uh, it put me into a wonderful place. I mean, I was in absolutely no pain. And every couple hours, like they do, they'd come in, take draw my blood, uh, check me, uh, uh, check my oxygen saturations, and... Uh, uh, continue to do that every three or four hours it was. And on the dot, I would get constantly get this pain medicine that they would just keep giving me. And uh, whether I asked for it or not, it was just something that they would give me. And at the, at the time, I didn't care. It just made everything feel so much better. And uh, I had this one respiratory therapist come in that... Can, can I pause you for a yes. second? Because I want to... I really want to shine some light on what you just said. The respiratory therapist, I think, is great, and I really want to hear what he said too, because it or what he did was amazing, and he's probably why you're still alive. I agree. They, you said something that just just hit me like a ton of bricks the first time and again, and I hope it hit everybody else the same way. You said they came in and gave you pain meds, whether you asked for it or not, and the problem with that is. I've been a doctor for about nine years now, and I've talked to some surgeons, some, you know, different types of surgeons, and I ask them, because in my experience, we never schedule pain meds like, you know, like opioid pain meds. We always, we do PRN, which means as needed, so they'll come and ask you every four hours, would you like this? And if you say, no, I'm good, then they don't give it to you. If you need it, they'll give it to you. But we don't typically, and I've never seen this, scheduling opioid pain meds now we'll schedule tylenol we'll schedule ibuprofen probably not a good thing to give you if if you had concerns of a heart attack or kidney issues or anything like that but to schedule opioids with someone who's got a respiratory problem now just for everybody listening this is this is huge i mean this is bigger than you could imagine because we're giving you a medication that's going to slow your respiratory rate and going to knock out the respiratory drive for someone who has a respiratory issue so that means they're giving him medication every four hours whether he needs it or not and he's kind of in a mental place where he's not able to refuse it and you did not mention this part yet but did you have anyone in the room with you that you could trust or family members or loved ones they wouldn't allow anybody in and uh, anybody that tried to call was blocked and and for a little situational awareness for everybody who's listening what does your wife do or what did she do? Uh, 35 years registered nurse. So she would have been a great asset to have there with you in this room that where you're alone. Yes, absolutely. And they're pumping you full of, full of opioids every four hours. Whether you ask for it or not, you're not in the right mental capacity to, to say no or yes because they just keep giving it to you. And you have inflammation or you have like pneumonia visible on, I guess, chest x-ray or mm-hmm. CT, whatever they did. All that. In both lungs. Right. So they're trying to 
knock your legs out from underneath you, so to speak. Without anybody to be there to speak for me. With no advocate. Right. Now, you did have an advocate. You had an angel oh, yes. who was watching over you. Now, tell me about this Overwatch angel. The respiratory therapist, he came in and he would watch, and I don't know the names of it, a respiratory therapist that came in, and, and I don't know the medical terms for the tools, but I would breathe into this thing and I'd have to float a disc and keep it in the certain parameters and he was very happy with my uh, uh, breathing that I was uh, being able to do because I wanted to get out of there. And the only way to get out of there, uh, w- short of just leaving, was to make them happy. Which I want to remind everybody again, it's going to be tough for you to leave if you're being given opioids every four hours and you're fairly opioid naive. And they are just like, it's just making you feel like, oh, let me just step into the light every four hours. Right. Absolutely. And... Uh, all I did was watch Westerns on my phone and just sat there like a blob for eight days. And uh, I did lose 10 pounds, though, so that was nice. <laughs> um, but he came in, and he was just working with me, and it just happened to be that his shifts worked out when I was there. And uh, so he would come in every day, and it was probably his five days on or whatever it was, and it worked out great because he wasn't the one that I had the first couple days. And... Uh, now, if I, I'll jump forward, each day I was given the the pain meds, whatever they were, every four hours and uh, three to four hours, whatever it was. But I was given that. Well, now if we fast forward to the seventh day, all of a sudden, a uh, hospital person brings in this contraption, which I know now what it was. But at the time, I'm like, what in the world is this huge thing? And I found out later it was a ventilator. Well... And how long had you been in the hospital? Did your seven days? So you've been in there for seven days that yeah. they have been pumping you full, like waking you up to giving you pain meds. Right. Yes. Waking absolutely. him up to give him like if if a patient is asleep and they have pain meds, and it's PRN as it should be, so as needed, you don't go wake the patient up and ask ask them their pain and then give them the pain med. You let them sleep, and so they're waking him up to give him the pain meds. Uh, Every, every single night, and even during the day if I dozed off, numerous times they would wake me up. And some of that dozing may have actually been the nods from the opioids yes. taking effect of you. And they would wake me up and, and ask me if I wanted anything, if I needed anything, and uh, take these pills. Or pills or a shot, whatever it was, but they would come in because numerous times they would come in and put stuff in my IV, which I didn't know what it was, and as doped up as I was, I didn't know or care, you know, Hey, I'm feeling fine. I think I'm going to be okay. So, and, and you shouldn't have to worry about these things, but we're in a world right now where you should always have an advocate. Even, you know, 10 years ago, I would have said you need an advocate with you when you're in the hospital, but now even more so with these protocols they have. I mean, Dr. Valit has, has talked about this along with Todd calendar and talked about it here in Arizona, how, these protocols are death protocols. And I can't see any other way to look at this than this is a death protocol to schedule opioids every four hours to even wake him up to give it to him when he has a respiratory problem. Now, if he's in that much pain, he'll be asking, hey, I need some pain because I'm, I'm doing pretty bad here. And I wouldn't be sleeping either. I was comfortable in sleeping. Right. Because you don't get a lot of sleep in the hospital. So when you sleep, you think they'd leave you alone. Uh, but that wasn't the case. So they bring in this contraption, which I find out later was a ventilator. 
And it just happened that this angel comes walking in at the same time, the respiratory therapist, and uh, tells them that they are not going to use that. They're not going to put it on me, in me, whatever, however it's done, that they don't need it. And the person that brought it in pulled the chart out and said, it's doctor's orders. And the respiratory therapist said, I don't care. He does not need it. He is ready to go home. He does not. And so after about 10 minutes, I'm going to guess, 8 to 10 minutes of them uh, talking over in the corner, they, the other person finally took the ventilator out. And then he stayed with me for a couple hours in there and uh, just worked with me and saw that I was in uh, obviously getting over the pneumonia and my kidneys were functioning again. And that was after numerous uh, UAs and uh, blood tests, everything they'd done. I had had CAT scans, MRIs. They injected iodine in me to uh, look at everything. So you had kidney problems, and they're injecting various dyes into you for imaging. Yes. Now, I'm not, I haven't looked at his medical records to, to look at the, how poor quality his kidney function was, but typically you're going to be very careful putting anything that can injure the kidney more in the middle of a kidney injury. Because you don't want to cause more problems, and we call that iatrogenic. You know, in med school, there was this uh, professor I had where he said iatrogenic means uh, you get to take the doctor's car home. <laughs> Jokingly. Yes. But what it means is it's a, it's a injury that's caused by the medical care. And, and it sure sounds like, sorry for all the background noise if you're hearing it, we're, we're actually uh, recording on location at his shop, and I can hear an ambulance going by. Um, but so they, which is interesting because you did not mention how the doctor came and told you they were going to put you on a vent. They did not. Nobody did. And I was just, I wouldn't have known what it was. I've never seen one, uh, because, uh, the medical profession that I got to know 25 years ago, they wouldn't do that. It was everything about the patient first. A vent was the absolute last thing that would go on. It just, uh, they wouldn't automatically do that. And uh, it was lucky enough that this uh, respiratory therapist was in there. Otherwise, I was doped up. I would have probably said, okay, I, I don't know. You know, I don't know anything. Well, that, was, that was a time when you could trust a doctor's orders. Exactly, back then, yes. And I've personally vented patients before who needed it. You know, I've, I've intubated a newborn. I've intubated adults. Uh, most of my intubations were during surgery. Um, but the thing is, if you're going to intubate someone, let's say, in the ICU, which was that an ICU room? No, it was a uh, uh, just a, a room. It was just in a private a room. COVID, yeah, private room. Not an ICU room, so there wasn't no, glass walls was, everywhere. You couldn't see into a big area that had. No, it was, no, it was just a room in the ward. The COVID so they room. were going to put him on a vent in a private room with no extra monitoring. Because what's different about ICU is if you've ever been to one, or if you haven't, I'll explain it to you. There's all these rooms that kind of circle a big room, and all of them have glass doors that face to the center, and all the nurses work in that center area. That way, uh, it's like a panoplex or panoply, I can't remember the name of it, but it's where they can always see every room at one time, and they have monitors that they watch also, and they have, because if you've got someone on a vent, something goes wrong, you need to be able to go over there within moments to fix that vent. And so they were going to put him on this vent in a private room by himself, at the end of, you know, middle of some hallway, into some hallway. Janitor's closet, I think. Yeah, that may have been it. 
and so, oh, it just boggles my mind. And then when you do intubate someone, you try other treatments first. I have this one instance when I was in uh, residency. It was Christmas Day, and there was a lady that she refused to be intubated. She was having some serious lung issues. The day before, she refused to be intubated, and so we put her on what they call BiPAP. Now, many people are familiar with CPAP, continuous airway pressure, and that's a big mask you put on, and it's a big blower on your face. Well, BiPAP is like that, but a lot stronger, and it's two pressures. So it's a light pressure to push air in, or I'm sorry, it's a heavy pressure to push air in, and then a lighter pressure to allow the airways to stay inflated and allow the air out. And if you really care about someone trying to breathe, you'll try that first to prevent intubation, because the last thing you want to do is do more medical interventions when you don't have to. And especially at a point in time where we know, because we knew this about six months or a year into COVID when it started, that people that went on vents were more likely to die. Yes, I agree. And so he was in a private room, not in the ICU. They did not try BiPAP. They kept giving them opioids to suppress his breathing when they knew he had uh, infiltrates in both lungs. And they wanted to intubate him, and they didn't talk to the respiratory therapist, which is the most critical person in this whole picture, because the respiratory therapist is with the patient most hours of the day. Yes, he was. And no, they, he was shocked when they brought it in. And it was a, I'll call it a professional argument between the two. And they were both professional about it in the corner talking, but he was absolutely adamant. And once again, I was so high, I'm just like, oh, wow, they're talking about me. I didn't know what they were saying. And, and again, you know, whoever you are, you know who you are. Thank you so much. Yes. And keep doing the work. And, and we're leaving all descriptors off of any possible identification so that you can keep doing God's work. Absolutely. Because you truly are doing God's work. Yes, he was. He just, amazing man. Okay, so let's go back to, they've had this professional argument, professional, which he was probably trying not that, that respiratory therapist was probably trying not to strangle the guy who wanted to uh, intubate you for, for no reason. Again, intubation is a significant medical intervention where they have to paralyze you so that you don't... Um, Would I have known that? They usually, if things are done in a normal world, which I don't know, they usually knock... Sorry, I, you can't see him right now, but his <laughs> he is just shocked because he doesn't... Yeah, um, What they do is they knock you out completely and paralyze you at the same time hopefully knock you out slightly before they paralyze you so that you're not a- awake and unable to move at all. Cause that, yeah, let's hope. Because that can be one of the most terrifying experiences in the world. And then they, they have a big um, blade, not sharp blade, but, but handle with a light and a blade on it, and they stick it down your throat into your trachea, and they lift up your head by that handle, and then they place a tube through your vocal cords. And then they take that handle out, they inflate a little cuff, then they get a chest x-ray. This is, again, in a perfect world where everything's right, and it should, as it should be done. Then they get a chest x-ray to make sure that it is properly placed, not too low, not too high. And they listen, and they look for carbon dioxide coming out. And if any one of those things is wrong, then it's in the wrong place, and they have to fix it. And so the wrong place means they put it in your stomach, and now your lungs aren't getting air after they've paralyzed you. Or it's only going into... Uh, the main stem bronchus, which means it's only in half of your lung on one side. So your other half isn't helping you. 
Um, I mean, there's, there's so many things that could go wrong with a significant medical intervention. The respiratory therapist had no, no want or no need or no request for this yeah, to be done to you. Correct. And I'm going to back up a little bit now. The, before he came in, I think he was in maybe after eight days, uh, let's say three days, I bet him. For the first three days, they had that device that I was to pull the saucer up in. And what is that called? Incentive spirometer? Yes. Or IS? I guess. Okay. Yes. Well, the first person that brought it into me told me all I was supposed to do was suck it up all the way to the top and do it 20 times uh, twenty times a day or... No, I forget the rate, but I was just supposed to do that. And then when he came in, he goes, are you using your IS? I said, of course, look at this. And I grabbed it. I was all proud of myself. And I pulled that thing all the way to the top. And he goes, what are you doing? I said, I'm doing what they told me to do. And he was just floored. He just started laughing. He goes, and he said, I'm not laughing at you, but that's not right. I said, yeah, look. And I did it again, and I did it exactly the way they showed me to do it. No. See these two little lines? You have to pull it and hold it there. I don't care if you can pull it all the way to the top. That does nothing. You got to hold it there. And I tried doing that. Wow. Now, that was difficult. But I ended up just working on it constantly because, once again, I wanted out. I did not like, I don't like being in there. So even in your your state of being over-medicated and confused and all this, you still had that drive. I I got to get out. Absolutely. Absolutely. And they tried everything they could to not get you out. Exactly. And and whoever taught you that, I mean, that, I don't know if a malpractice is the right word, but it's certainly beyond the pale of wrong because it was a workout when you did it the proper way. Correct. And it was, it was, it, it's not a bong hit. You know, you're not supposed to just rip this thing as hard as you can. Right. You're supposed to take a inspiration you know, breathe in slowly to keep this at a certain level. Um, and that is really hard to do. And it also inflates your lungs very differently right. than just hitting this thing really hard. And so whoever, yeah, whoever this first person that taught you this was wrong. Very and wrong. then everybody else, when the nurses would come in and check on me to give me my pain meds or whatever else they would give me, uh, they made sure I was doing it. And at least three of them also said, yep, you're doing it good. Keep it up. And they th- also saw I was doing it wrong, but they either didn't know or didn't care. I don't, I don't know what. And uh, the, uh, when the one uh, hospital, hospitalist came in, uh, about day two he came in, and he bumped my lisinopril, which I'd been on for six years, 20 milligrams once a day. He bumped it to 40. Well, uh, I probably didn't need that, and once my uh, uh, once my doctor, what is they called? What are they called? A primary care. Pri- yes, thank yeah. you. Once my primary care found out that I was on forty, he immediately shut that down because he had seen all my blood work too. Uh, Tucson had sent it to him, and it was like. Two, three days later after I got out, I went and saw him and he said, you will immediately, you need to stop the 40. You don't need that much. And uh, so I stopped that. So So let me just pause you there for a second also. So you're potentially in sepsis and sepsis is an infection and it it can come from the lungs, it can come from anywhere, but it's an infection. 
And the problem with sepsis is not high blood pressure. The problem with sepsis is low blood pressure. In fact, there was a um, neonatologist, I believe it was, in England, and, and this is why a socialized healthcare is horrid because this lady was the attending over like five different hospitals. There was this infant who uh, was admitted for sepsis. Again, that's a blood pressure problem, meaning the blood pressure is too low. And um, either some resident or some nurse or someone gave this infant um, a similar medication. And the infant died because the blood pressure went too low because the blood pressure was already too low when you're an infected and that nurse, or that doctor, that attending, actually went into prison. Oh wow! Which I think is wrong. I, I think um, I, I don't agree with that at all. I think at best that would be malpractice, and you'd have some sort of censure put on you, or, or you know, licensure um, abeyance, or something to that nature. But what caused her to go to prison for criminal um, intent? I guess for a patient she never met, even though um, the system stretched her too too thin and too far. Um, was blood pressure medication and too much of it in someone that is already having low blood pressure. So they're giving you something that's taking out your respiratory drive when you have a lung infection. Most, almost everyone, like 99.9999% of people who are infected have to have their, you know, their blood pressure is low, normal, or even very low and need what we call pressors that actually kind of Think of it as like they're pressing the veins in the vasculature to, to increase the pressure. And they're giving you something to dilate your, your vessels and cause you to pee out more in the middle of some sort of kidney injury that you've been hearing about. Double. From 20 to 40 milligrams I was, they put me on. And, and to keep you on all of your home meds yeah. is a strange thing to do. Yes. It's a very strange thing to do when you admit someone. That was the first thing I learned in residency is someone gets admitted, you get them off of all their home meds and you put them on usually IV so that you can control everything. And then as you can, you get them back on their home meds so that you can get them out the door. But you don't just keep letting them take their home meds, especially if it's a blood pressure and they have an infection that you're treating, an alleged infection, infection that they're treating. The, and after probably the second day, anybody that would come in, other than just the a uh, person taking my blood pressure, but anybody, a, a nurse or the hospitalist, whenever they would come in, I'd ask them when they thought I would be out of there, and their reply was, as soon as you're better. And, okay, well, I guess that makes sense. But then, of course, like I said, over and over, I was so high, I thought I was better. I mean, it felt good. Well, and if they're not trying to wean you off these pain medications, you've been on them for seven, eight days yeah. before you get it discharged, how can they get you out of the door if they truly think you're in that much pain, how can they get you out of the door without you controlled on your pain meds with you controlling the pain meds? That, and now I'll fast forward. On the eighth day when I did get a leave, they ended up, uh, wouldn't give me anything, no script, nothing. They went from giving me whatever pain med I was on, and then when I left, they told me to take ibuprofen. When they already said that you had a kidney injury? Yes. Yep. And they were giving you twice as much lisinopril as normal because mm-hmm. they said your blood pressure was too high. Correct. That was their, their reasoning. And now they're giving you something that's going to raise your blood pressure for pain. And being on opioids for seven days, it's very, or eight days, it's very reasonable that you could go through withdrawals. Eight days every three or four hours, I think so. Yeah. And Which will increase my blood pressure. Yes. And, yeah. and so it doesn't seem like anything they did 
was to save your life or to help you, but it seemed like they were trying to do the exact opposite. Uh, that's what I believe now that I look back, that it was all about a financial gain or numbers or whatever, but it was not health care that I've been used to in the past. I mean, there was a, well, pain meds in general are frowned upon their use, even when people actually need them. But not in this instance. And then when you finally said, I need to leave, and we'll get into the little more particulars of that, they have been giving you every four hours, and then they said, all right, get out of here. Yes. We'll give you nothing to help you come off of this this dependency that we have caused, iatrogenically caused right. dependency. And I want to make it very clear here, dependency and addiction are vastly different. Addiction is... When something is bad for you and it destroys your life, but yet you continue to do that action. So that means, um, let's say your life is destroyed by alcohol, but you continue to drink alcohol. Your life is destroyed by opioid, heroin use, or meth use, but you continue to do it. Dependency is a chemical dependency on that your body has. And you can have dependency without addiction. But chemical dependency is when someone goes through withdrawals. And so you typically see chemical dependency a problem when someone doesn't have pain or maybe did have pain at one time and they were starting on opioids and then they try to come off of them when they no longer have pain or they've been on them for a while. But they want to get off of them. That's the difference between addiction and dependency is with the only dependency and no addiction, you want to get off of the medication. But it's going to be hard and it's going to be painful because your body's become dependent on it. Happy to have it, right? Yeah, just like like if I have caffeine. Right. And I'm drinking coffee every day and then I go like two or three days without coffee, I have a mild withdrawal, you know, a headache and just kind of sleepy and tired all day. That is the effects of dependency. That's not addiction. When I had my heart attack, they came in and kept asking me how my pain was, how my pain was, and the, they put me on Dilaudid. And the next, probably two days later, I hadn't had coffee, and I only drink one cup. I don't drink it anymore, but th- at that point, I was only drinking one cup a day at first thing in the morning. And they asked how my pain was. I said, it's about a 10, because I was having caffeine withdrawal. And they said, well, do you want some uh, more pain medicine? No, I want a cup of coffee, but they wouldn't give it to me, which I understand. But they were so happy to give me pain med, but the pain med wasn't taking care of the uh, uh, dependency for caffeine. And what year did you say you first went to the hospital for the heart attack issue? Uh, uh, 2014. So in 2014, when medicine was still, still had its head about it, they asked you if you were in pain and would not give it to you unless you said yes. Oh, correct. Right. So, I mean... This is not That's like how much it's changed in just a fast eight years. Well, it's it, most of this has oh, changed no, seven years. Yeah. yeah. Oh, most of it's changed the last two years. Two years, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so uh, let's go back to the this angel who's got Overwatch on you mm-hmm. says, "No, you're not yes. doing the vent," and that was the seventh or the eighth day. That was the seventh day because he had plans of me getting out on the eighth day because he had already seen that my Blood pressure level was fine. My kidneys were working again. I had uh, used the restroom enough times. They were happy about that. And uh, my uh, lungs, I was fine after using the machine. And then just the uh, nasal cannula that I was on at night. and Or the whole time I was there. 
but he was very satisfied with it. So he was pushing for me to leave the next morning on the eighth day. And so what happened the next day? Next day, the hospitalist finally came in and uh, told me he wanted me to continue. Was giving me a script for the 40 lisinopril, and he wanted me to continue taking my home meds. And uh, it was going to be a couple hours. They were going to give me a concentrator to take home and uh, some oxygen bottles to take home. And just for everybody, concentrators to concentrate oxygen to give him higher levels of oxygen so that he can get out of the hospital. Because typically we want to get people out of the hospital as quick as we can because the hospital is a dangerous place. Yes. It's dangerous because there's all sorts of crazy bugs, and I don't mean like actual like creepy crawly bugs, but like bacteria that are around that are really hard to kill. And you've got all this whole medical system that we're pretty good. We still make mistakes, and people get injured by getting the wrong medication, the wrong uh, concentration of a medication, which can cause significant injury. So the best place for someone to be is at home if they can live at home, and that's why they give, gave you an oxygen concentrator. Correct. And on another note, the one thing I was shocked by was how many nurses were there that were uh, travelers, that they were only there for the money. And they told me they were just very, very happy with how much they were getting paid. And some of the local nurses, they were uh, upset, which they should be. They've been there, you know, 10, 15 years, and they were making anywhere from 15 to 20 hour, $20 less an hour than these travelers. And the travelers seemed to be less personable and care about the health care. They would come in, it was just a slam, bam, thank you, sir, and back out the door. Did you get to talk with them much and find out where they're from? Like, did they all seem to be from one particular geographic location? Uh, yeah, I would say the Midwest. Uh, whatever states, Illinois, Ohio, Indiana, up there. The three that I had encountered that were travelers. Which is weird because we're supposed to be in the middle of this pandemic with all these nurses and doctors working so hard. It seems like there'd be lots of work here, but a Clearly, they did not have enough nurses to staff the hospital. That's why they had to have traveling nurses in so often. Correct. And the one nurse that was a local nurse, uh, they had told me that they were short on nurses anyway, which doesn't make sense because she said before COVID, they had more than enough nurses. And there wasn't, there was uh, the COVID ward, I think there was 30 or 40 rooms in the COVID ward. And there was probably only 20 of them filled, and each one of us had our own room. And they joked, which I was happy, but you get your own room if you're a COVID patient. So at least I had my own room. And this is something that a lot of people don't understand, and they hear these statistics on the news where they say, oh, this hospital's at 80% capacity, this hospital's at 90% capacity. But if you don't know the hospital world, then you don't understand how an ICU has always been at... 90, 100% capacity, always. That's, that's the optimal running speed. And there's always, you know, maybe a 24-hour wait in the, in the ER before they can even get admitted because there's no beds open. And, and the reason why it needs to be like that is, one, for cost, right? You, if you can't keep the doors open, then you can't help anybody. Right. If, if you're not working all the time as fast as you can, then you're not good enough to be taking care of that level of patient. And so if you just, you know, you have, let's say you're a 10-bed unit and you only have two filled, 
eventually you lose your skills and you can't take care of those those complex patients. And that's that's another reason why you're always running at 90, 100% capacity. And that's what's really bothered me this entire time is there, there are statistics that you can look up and find out, oh, what's what's the capacity of my normal hosp- of my local hospital? I've heard of people actually looking up the capacity of where they want to travel to see what the capacity, how full is it? Which is something that no lay person would have ever even contemplated previously. And delaying travel, not traveling, not going visiting family because a hospital is at 90%. They, they don't go. Now they don't do these things. Right. They don't get to see family. And, you know, I remember in residency, where I did my residency, there, would, there was an ICU patient in the hallway of the ICU waiting for a bed to open. And, and the way that most ICU beds open, and this is, this is kind of dark and, and very sad, but most ICU beds open when someone dies. You know, sometimes we get people, um, it's a success and we can get them out, but that's not the overwhelming majority. Because to get to the ICU, to need that level, that high, high level of care, you're very, very ill. But now we've got ICUs that they're losing their skills. Right. The nurses are losing the skills. They can't, you know, sometimes they, you know, they'd be having five different pumps with pressors and uh, antibiotics and just all these different medications. And, and it, it takes like one nurse for one patient for 12 hours, that right. level of acuity. And they've got you in a room by yourself. Coming in, giving you morphine every yes, four hours, right. twice as much blood pressure meds, and then wheeling a vent in without talking to you or the respiratory therapist. Exactly. So it's just, it's, it's almost, I don't know if I can say it, it's pure evil, but if it was intentional, it would definitely be 100% pure evil. And I've heard hospitals compared to, and I'm not making this analogy, but I've heard this said, that the hospital is the new FEMA camp. Oh, I can believe that. And if you, if you see what was, was, was done to you, sir, and then they don't allow anyone in. No. They don't allow you to get any phone calls. Well, how can you make the argument that it's not a FEMA camp? You can't. I didn't even have a phone in the room. I had my cell phone, but I didn't, there wasn't a phone in the hospital room. And they didn't ask me if I had my cell phone because I, I kept it hidden in case they were going to say I couldn't have it. And I just, they didn't ask me if I had one, so I just kept it hidden. Which is weird. That, that would even cross your mind that you should keep it hidden. Yeah. But if that's what you, you know, sometimes we, we, don't, we don't have to know what the, what's being said around us to know the feeling of the room. Oh, exactly. But for you to feel that you must hide it, and, and you're a retired Marine. Yes. You felt that it was important to hide that phone. And not have it taken. And not have it taken, which I think is just like, I didn't hear that before. And I think that is shocking that you felt you needed to hide your phone, almost like you're in a prison. But it's hard to, to make a different analogy because they're doing something to your body without your request. They're not allowing any family members to come and visit. They're isolating you. It's almost like it's a prisoner of war camp. That and now I know they had to control my diet. I understand that. Uh, but I was told what I could eat also. And there's only a few things on the menu that they would allow me to eat. Can you tell us what some of those things were? Uh, absolutely boring food. Um, I could eat eggs with nothing else, nothing on them. Uh, abs- I don't eat much salt anyway. I just don't care for it. But absolutely no seasoning at all. Uh, they did call up one time, though, and asked me if I wanted 
it was a Mexican dish. I forget what it was, but they asked me if I wanted that, and I said, I don't think I can have that. And the guy goes, no, I'm pretty sure you can. I said, well, I don't want to tell you your job, but I think that I'm not supposed to have that. And he looks, and he goes, oh, wow, yeah, you're right. You can't have that. You can have it. It was just bland, boring food, but it was maybe, I'm going to say, five different things I could eat for the eight days I was there. They probably didn't give you offer you steak, but did no. they? No. Or what about just like straight beef? Do you remember them offering you beef? No, I don't think beef at all. And what's interesting is there's an article. It was written in October of 19, published in January of 20, and it talks about um, creatine, creatinine, and their dietary roles. And it says that as little as 30 grams of red meat a day for the average adult it can optimize the immune system to help you fight infections. To include, and it says in parentheses, coronaviruses. Wow. But most people I tell that to have no idea that red meat will actually help them fight infections, help optimize their immune system. I was, uh, I think the majority of the time for dinners and lunch, I would get uh, a f- some fish. Or, uh, oh no, they did let me have cheese. I'd have uh, for lunch like a cheese quesadilla or something. Which is good. Um, and, you know, as most listeners know, I'm, I'm big into animal-based eating. And I think some, some fruit is okay, but I think vegetables should be avoided. You know, go listen to episode five and episode, oh, I don't remember the number, but it's the conversation with my wife to get more into that. But as humans, we need to eat fat. We need to eat animal fat, not polyunsaturated fats. Those are not good for us. But we need animal fat because cholesterol is actually part of the immune system. So if they're not giving you the things, which eggs are very good. They have lots of good cholesterol, which there is no bad cholesterol unless it's a lipid nanoparticle that they're calling cholesterol. Uh, there's Any animal cholesterol is a really good thing to have in your body when you're trying to heal. And so it's critically important that they give you red meat. And fish is good. Um, not discounting that, but but they should be giving you more animal-based products so that your body can heal, so you can get back to good health, so you can get out the door. Right. But they also should not be giving you opioids every four hours. Yes, I agree. Okay, so we're on day eight now. And don't, we did your, your medications, your discharge, and you come home. I uh, came home and I was fine. I came back to work the next day. I... Uh, I think the only thing that was wrong with me, which was a fact, was the pneumonia and uh, whatever, I forget the term they used on my kidneys, but the kidneys. Uh, But I was drinking water fine, I was uh, uh, sleeping fine, and uh, the dependency on the opiates that they gave me, uh, for me to remember back to October, I would have a hard time, but I'm sure it wasn't comfortable, Uh, just all of a sudden nothing. They wouldn't give me anything, which... That's fine. It got me off it. I don't know how good that was for my body and my heart situation, my blood pressure. And I saw my uh, primary care then. He took me off the 40 milligrams of lisinopril and immediately wanted another blood test. So I did that. And uh, he didn't like it that I had taken myself off statins, but I just wasn't going to do it anymore because I don't think he studied statins as much as in medical school as much as other people that are against it have. And now that I've been off that statin drug for eight, nine, ten months now, my memory's back, uh, more energy, I my brain is sharper. I was just a 
thug, just a, a blob before on the statins for years. And to any of the naysayers out there that think that you must be on a statin to prevent heart disease, look at the facts. And it's triglycerides that are associated with cardiovascular disease. If you look at the diagnostic criteria for syndrome X or metabolic syndrome, it takes into account um, triglycerides and HDL. HDL should be, it's it's negative if the HDL is low. So they want your HDL to be high. Um, And then triglycerides being high or bad. But all of a sudden, when we look at the ASCVD risk, they bring in LDL and they get rid of triglycerides. And so why did that happen? I don't know. Because probably, um, well, I do, but we'll, we'll get into that some other time, different episode. That's a, that's a very long discussion. But basically they said, oh, they cut open an artery and they said, oh, this looks like LDL. This must be LDL. Quick, everybody, lower LDL. And it hasn't panned out because LDL is part of the immune system. And as soon as you fast, your LDL level increases significantly. Well, why would your body be making something to clog up your arteries the moment you fast for about 12 hours or so. Maybe it's more because it's energy that the body can use when you're in a fasting state. It helps your immune system work. And then if you have any virus, bacteria, or cancer, it can't use that LDL. It needs sugar. And so a fasting state is actually a pretty good place to be occasionally. You know, I mean, you shouldn't fast the rest of your life because your life won't be much longer. Right. <laughs> But fasting, you know, 10, 12, 16 hours a day, if you're an adult and you have no other significant medical issues, then that's, that's not a bad thing because that helps boost your immune system. That helps get rid of all the bad stuff in your body. So like the cells that are kind of just limping along, we've all heard that a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. Well, if right. we get rid of some of that, we kind of clean house a little bit and get rid of those weak links, then we can function at a higher level. And that's what happens when we fast. And fasting is, is important. And then eating fatty foods and when I say fatty foods, I mean animal fat, um, no seed, nut oils. Those are terrible for your, your body. But they would make you believe that, oh, he's, you know, he's going to die because he doesn't get a statin. Right. No, I feel much better. And I believe that the harm that the statin drugs, now for me, I'm not talking to everybody else, but for me, the harm that the statins did was way worse than the benefit I'm feeling not taking them. For my cholesterol to be a point or two above what it should be, so what? What are they basing that off of? I'm a, Each person's unique and different. And for them to say, oh, you need to be back on it because you're two points high, I'd rather be off it and have two points high and just work on exercising and diet. And I'd rather your triglycerides be lower. Yeah. And, that's, and that's the only thing. Right. And if, like Dr. Ken Berry in one of his videos, he says his... LDL, the one that's supposed to be low, that most docs would say needs to be low, was 320. Wow. But it's part of the immune system. It's necessary for the body. And, you know, some of that fogginess of the mind that we see with statins, it makes perfect sense if we're altering how fats are digested in the body. Well, the brain is the fattiest organ in the body. Mm -hmm. And that, that fatty organ is how we interact with the world. It's thoughts, it's feelings, it's all those things. And so if we're altering how we how we metabolize fats, then we can't give the proper building blocks for our brain to work properly. And that's exactly what was going on for six years prior to when I finally decided to stop taking them. And I just stopped and I haven't done them since. And I'm just fine. Like I said, maybe two points higher. And 
I don't care because I was in a fog and being self-employed, you got to have your brain in your head. And I just didn't. And what kind of life is that where you're in a fog and you don't know and you're agitated? Days flew by, weeks flew by, months, years flew by. It was just nothing was getting done. It was just a stagnant time, it seemed like. Well, Dean, thank you, sir. Thank you. I appreciate your time. And and the respiratory therapist, you know who you are. Thank you. Yes. And keep up the good work. And there is a special place that is prepared for you. Absolutely. And it's a wonderful place. And we will pray for you that you keep having the opportunity to do the work that you're doing and that you keep having the bravery to do the work that you're doing. Yes, and be bold. I absolutely believe he is a, a major reason why I'm here. You've heard Dean's story. You heard what he went through. If you have family members that get admitted, do everything within your power to stay with them. Be their voice when they have no voice. Be their advocate when they have no advocate. A hospital can be a dangerous place even when everything is perfect. There are stories of accidental medical errors that end up harming people. There's stories of people getting infections with pathogens that can't be treated. Hospitals are dangerous places. But with what we just heard, it seems that there may be even a deeper level, more maleficent level of danger that we must be aware of. Next episode is going to be an episode with Matthew Lohmeyer. Matthew Lohmeyer recently was removed from his command position in the Space Force. His crime? Talking about radical Marxism and critical race theory and how it destroys the morale of the troops. He went head-to-head with the Unseen Realm, and he's coming out strong. He is on God's side, just as we are. He puts on the full armor of God, just as Dean does. For God told us, be strong and courageous, to stand firm. And now what I will tell you is, let's all make courage more contagious than fear. Fear.